All right. This morning, um, it's one of those times where you feel like the sermon's already been preached um, in so many ways, but I hope you don't mind listening a little bit longer. I have uh, some things that as I have studied the story of David, this is part two, there's so much that's there for us to look at today. And so, um, Steve, you've taken a portion of the sermon already, praise God. That way I can cut it down. You don't have to sit here quite as long. Uh, But before we do start, I'd like to ask the Holy Spirit to be with us. If you bow your heads with me. Our Father, we recognize that it is your Holy Spirit we desperately need. Me, as I share. And all of us, fathers, we hear your word. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I'd like to start out by reading a song written by David at the end of his reign as king, Psalm chapter 18. And he's looking back on how God has led in his life. There's a few things that he shares. These are very pertinent because this is a a picture maybe what he was feeling that applies to this great battle, this one great battle in the life of David. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock save our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to war so that my arms can bend the bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again until they were destroyed. I have wounded them so they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Last week, when we looked at the life of David, we realized, was it last week? Was it two weeks ago? Oh, When we looked at the life of David, we realized that David was going through a change. He was a shepherd boy, but he was anointed. He was called specifically. Remember, God doesn't look at the outward. God looks at the inward, right? And so God saw something in David that even though he wasn't the standout in his family per se, God saw it and wanted to use him. So David has been chosen, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verse 13. 
1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So David has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Meanwhile, Saul is struggling with guilt, depression, and knowledge that he's not doing what God has asked him to do. So you have these two. You have the king of Israel who has some serious issues going on. And then over here, you have David, and everything looks pretty good for him right now. That being said, people start saying, how can we help Saul? And here's what they decided to do. It says here in verse 15, and Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from Lord, from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Interesting enough, who do they bring? David. So David, who has been chosen to be king, is now brought into the royal presence. Does, the, does Saul know he's chosen to be king? No, he doesn't. Saul just needs some help with his bad mental state. So here is David. He's playing before the king. He's in the court, and he gets a picture of everything that's taking place. He gets to see what's happening in the court. He realizes that all's not well where the king is. It's kind of a rough place for him to realize he uh, does go back and forth between them and his father's house. Sometimes he's in the court. Sometimes he goes back home to herd his father's sheep. And that's where we will pick up with our story today. Chapter 17 and verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle, which were gathered at Sukkoth, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sukkoth and Azekah and Ephesdamim. Who were the Philistines? Philistines were descendants of Ham, which was one of the sons of Noah. Uh, they were, uh, lived in what is now known as Crete. Okay, so this is an island off uh, Asia Minor, Greek area. So they were an island people. In fact, um, they were part of a larger group of people called the Sea Peoples. They traveled from their area in Greece and Asia Minor and Crete and traveled south. I wish I had a map, but they traveled south down to um, Egypt. And when they got to Egypt, there was a king there at that time. His name was Ramses III. And they took on Ramses III. And Ramses III won kicked them out, and on their way back up, several of them decided to stop in Palestine. And in Palestine, there were several other small groups of Philistines that had already been there for quite a while, from Abraham's time. Because you remember, Abraham actually lied to the Philistine king Abimelech, saying, Sarah's my sister, right? So that's, that's some of the connect. So there was just small pockets, but now there's a whole group of Philistines now, and they're starting to build up and become a nation. Just about the same time, the children of Israel are in the judges, and it's uh, two nations growing simultaneously and both wanting to expand. Philistines were kind of a sea-based culture, adventurous, warlike spirit. Uh, you could see in this picture exactly, the artist actually is fairly accurate. What do you see on the helmet of this man in the chariot? I don't know if any of you can notice it, but archaeologists uh, have, have seen that feathers in their helmets was part of the Philistine war attire. 
Uh, often we have a, a, attached that to the Plains Native Americans here in the United States, but no, this is uh, something that was on the Philistines as well. Uh, they were uh, very specifically chosen, uh, not chosen, but they were very specifically against God's people. And you can't miss this picture. I'm going to give you a few instances of how the Philistines were specifically against God's people. Uh, once, uh, in Judges chapter 10, verse 6 and 7, is the first time we see Philistines being mentioned. There is in between Judges. The Hebrews don't know what to do. I think I've mentioned this before, but what happens in Judges is you have a good judge and everyone follows God. The good judge dies and everyone stops following God. And then they go through this whole period of not following God and they get in trouble. And then they say, God, please help us. And God sends a judge and they start following God again. And they follow God as long as that judge is alive. And then when he dies, they go back. And, and that's a cycle. In between one of these cycles, uh, the good judge died and they started worshiping the Philistine gods. You saw the Philistines, they were living around them. Both cultures are growing up around the same time in Canaan, at least in a big way. And they said, oh, let's worship their gods. And God said, if you want to worship their gods, then uh, you can be with them. And what happens is the Philistines are the first times we see them oppressing them is in Judges chapter 10. Then it continues. In the days of Samson, who was Samson's biggest enemy? Other than himself. Right, right? The Philistines. So he's always fighting with the Philistines. There's that battle that's going back and forth between these two people. And then, do you remember that story of a guy named Eli? He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, right? And, and they had a battle with a certain group of people, and the ark was taken, taken captive. What was the group of people? It was the Philistines. And so the Philistines have had this interaction with the Israelites back and forth. In fact, they had taken the ark, and uh, they had found out from the ark that the God of the Hebrews was more powerful than their God. Now, it didn't mean the Hebrews actually followed their God. But the God of the Hebrews was more powerful than their God, and they could see that. Uh, very interesting story, if you want to read it. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through chapter 6. And then something else happens. After Eli dies, and his sons Hophni and Phinehas die, there's a new judge in Israel, a new kind of priest, prophet. Who is he? He took Eli's place. Samuel, right? Remember Samuel? He's sleeping and, and, and God speaks to him. That's during the reign of Eli. When Eli dies, Samuel comes in charge. Well, Samuel is speaking to all the people, bringing back a revival. And in the midst of doing that revival, all of a sudden the Philistine says, let's attack them at their spiritual gathering. Don't attack God's people when they're at a spiritual gathering and they're turning their hearts back to God. And that's what they did. And when they attacked it was incredible. God fought for them, and the Philistines are destroyed. This story is in 1 Samuel chapter 7. So this, this is the history going back and forth. And then, then the Philistines, because God's people go in this cycle. I just want to speak to us today. I know we don't live in the period of judges, but we're human. And humans struggle with cyclic, cyclic relationships with God. Sometimes we're on and sometimes we're not. And whenever a person gets into this cycle, it's not good for them. And that's what's taking place with these Hebrews. They're not, sometimes they're on, sometimes they're off. Well, after Samuel's big victory, Samuel didn't do it, God did it, at Mizpah, a few years later, the Philistines are in charge again. Yeah, they came in charge, by the way, they didn't get in charge while Samuel was judge. But when Samuel came in and took over the leadership, 
excuse me, Saul came and took the leadership. Then the Philistines start attacking again. And as they're attacking, they say this, you're not allowed to have any weapons. No weapons are allowed to have anywhere among the Hebrews. Well, there was two people who had them, Jonathan and his armor bearer. It's a great story. And they go and decide that they are going to go and attack the Philistines by themselves. And they do. And God works a tremendous miracle through them and the army of Israel wins. And that was the battle of Michmash. And that took place. A big battle. So this is the history between the Hebrews and the Philistines. Now, they're coming out again. They've been defeated by Saul and Jonathan. Well, actually, probably about 20 years previous. Um, I will touch on Saul and Jonathan. Jonathan and David being best friends the next time we talk. But it's interesting because they are actually very different in age, but they're very close together in their heart. Very interesting picture. So um, here is David, uh, Saul, excuse me, Philistines are attacking again Saul. And the place they choose to fight is a place halfway between the city of Gath, which was the Philistine city where Goliath is from, and the city of Bethlehem, which is interesting, where David's from. About 15 miles from each one. This is just, uh, I, I'm going to give honor and credit to where I got this from, Google Maps. I want to make sure I do that. I'm allowed to uh, use it as long as I give credit. So there's the credit. Um, this is the Valley of Elah. Uh, as you're looking at it, the top picture kind of gives you the idea. It's very fertile. It's a beautiful place. It's used for growing a lot of things. The bottom picture is probably archaeologically, historically, where we look at where the, the Philistines' kind of headquarters were, that section. They weren't majorly big armies. This valley is, is not much longer than um, a couple miles long. So they, however, what you're not seeing here, um, because of the angle of these pictures, in the midst of this valley, there is another valley. It's almost like a wadi, okay? Dried up river gorge. And it's almost impassable, except for a few different places. At least not passable, it says the whole group running over. And that is the picture we have here. Notice what it says in verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle against array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with a valley. And that word valley is different than the valley of Elah. It actually means a wadi, more like a ravine, between them. And that is the setting for our story. Philistines have come. The battle array is ready to go. And they brought out their weapon. His name, Goliath. Uh, man, I could not have asked for more than Goliath standing behind me right now. now this is fantastic. Um, what a, uh, well, yes. So he's big, right? And again, there is some debate about his size, um, but based upon the, the official wording of the Bible, he is six cubits in a span. However you want to measure your cubits in a span. Um, I've read in several places it was around 10 feet, which would be your nine feet, nine inches, right? So we're looking at a very big person, uh, the male that he's covered with is armor, again, 125 pounds. Um, can I lift this thing up? I had a feeling it's not going to... Oh, man. Yeah, this is serious. I'm afraid to put it on its end. Um, 
but can you imagine actually using this and throwing it? There is a, I know some of you actually can't wait to touch this, so after the sermon, we'll just leave it here. But 15-pound head on it, just uh, amazing. There is uh, just a, a big guy. You know, Goliath doesn't really go by his name that much if you read this chapter, 1 Samuel 17. Almost always he's called the Philistine. It's almost, <laughs> in a way, it's almost like it's a reminder. His connection is with the enemy of God's people. This constant reminder, this is an enemy. This is an enemy of God's people. Well, the Philistines have a strategy, and their strategy is based upon Goliath. Neither one of them really have an advantage. I think they figured that out. Uh, they, the, the Hebrews really don't want to take the battle too strongly against the Philistines, and the Philistines don't want to bring it too strongly against the Hebrews. They, it's too equal, and it's going to be too much loss. But there is a way to get around too much loss, and that is to have a strategy, and this was common in those days, of having a duel. Your best man versus our best man, right? Winner takes all. And so that's what they're looking at, and they decide and call for that. We can read about this in verse 8 and 9. Then he stood, and that is Goliath, and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And then he says it in verse 10, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Verse 11 says, when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were what? Dismayed and greatly afraid. Um, Do you know how often Goliath did this? In the story, verse 16 says it was 40 days, every morning and every evening. And I'd like to take a little bit of time. Our title for today is Winning Against Giants. And I'd like to just talk a little bit about giants. Looking at Goliath is one of our pictures. Do you realize that giants don't just go away. You ever wish that some of the giants in your life just went away? You know, God, maybe I'll get old enough and I'll no longer be a giant. Maybe if I don't deal with it, it'll eventually disappear. Giants don't go away. They're persistent. They stay there. They remind you of their existence on a regular basis. If you know what I'm talking about, Giants often are used in the Bible to stop God's people from doing what he's asked them to do. Remember, they were supposed to go and take out Canaan not too long after the Mount Sinai, and they had spent some time at Mount Sinai, and they were marching towards Canaan. How many spies went in? Twelve spies, right? So the twelve spies go in, and, and how many come back? All twelve. But 10 of them have a negative report. And one of the main reasons was because of the, the giants. We can't do it. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. And there was this fear that they had. Giants are not only persistent, they often keep God's people from doing what God's asked them to do. Something else about giants I find interesting. Why are they often so successful? Here's why. You can look at our giant behind me. And look at me. 
who wants to defend me against him? Humanly impossible. If I met a person that size with that kind of armor right now, and you would look at me and say, there's no way, Chuck. You either run as fast as you possibly can. I had a roommate once, a housemate, and uh, he was a whole lot bigger and stronger than I am. And we had a disagreement once. Um, it was my first year of teaching, first job, teaching job, and we had a trailer. And my bedroom was a long way from the living room, and the heat from the wood stove took a while to get back to my bedroom. My friend, on the other hand, lived right next to the living room where all the heat was. So I filled the stove because I wanted the heat to come back through the living room to my bedroom. I cranked the stove up. He, on the other hand, he's a big guy, uh, several hundred pounds, six foot four, massive muscles, and he didn't like the heat in his room. And so he told me, don't you ever do it. When I said, well, I'm smaller and I need heat. So I put the wood in the wood stove. He came out. He grabbed the pair of gloves, put them on, reached into the stove, took out the burning logs and threw them outside the trailer. One time he got frustrated with me and he started chasing me. <laughs> and I knew I was in good shape because I could run faster than he could. So I started running around the kitchen table, which was not a smart thing to do. I forgot how strong he was. He just picked up the kitchen table and walked straight towards me. <laughs> when someone's bigger and stronger than you, you don't have a chance except to run and not in circles around tables. This is something that we must realize as to why giants are successful is because they're humanly impossible to defeat. Okay, does that make sense? So humans can't defeat giants in and of themselves. That's why giants are typically so successful. Another reason is because I, I can't speak for you, but I think I could. Most of us as humans are pretty independent. I got this. Oh, really? Yeah, I've got this. And so it's kind of, we think we've got everything under control. And we want to try to take on the giants. Just possibly we might be successful. And then, man, we were successful against the giant. It's like so cool. And we miss out on something. Giants, they thrive on our independence. Did you know that? Because they can win. As long as you're independent and think you've got it, you lose. Don't take on a giant by yourself. You know, um, one more important thing, and this is slightly not connected, but it's not connected. I'm just throwing this as a free spiritual point, okay? You probably already got this in your mind, but this is just something that came across my mind. If you meet a giant, it doesn't mean that you're doing the wrong thing. Too many times we look and we see giants and say, well, if I see a giant, then I must be doing the wrong thing. And we make our decisions based upon whether the way is easy or not. Our direction is not to come from whether there's giants in our paths. Our direction comes from whether God wants us to go forward or not. If God says go ahead, go ahead, whether there's a giant or not. So here's our giants. Um, well, God has his champion to take on this monstrous man. And his is this guy. 
probably not who you and I would choose, a shepherd boy. David is, um, well, you know some general statistics about David. He's not 10 feet tall. He's actually the youngest son of Jesse, the youngest boy. He's not from Gath. He's from Bethlehem. Um, he is not a professional soldier, although he has occasionally worked for Saul. And based upon how you read it, at some point he's had some military training with Saul, even though he's quite young. Um, he's a shepherd. His weapons, a staff and a sling. Very different kind of guy. However, God arranges for David to connect with Goliath. Goliath is the enemy of God's people. David is God's champion. He's got to bring them across each other's path. And here's how it happens. You probably know the story. Jesse, the father of David, said, David, come here. David's three older brothers were all fighting for Saul, and Jesse wanted David to go and check on him. Not check on what they're doing good, but just to make sure they have everything they need. Bring them their food. Um, make sure you give a little bit of food to the captain. You always want to make sure the captain of your kids is okay. That way he knows that everything's going okay. So they gave some extra cheeses. I uh, can't imagine that would be a, a special, right? To the captain to make sure that he has what he needs. And uh, David goes. And when he arrives, leaves the food with uh, the guy who's in charge of all the camp. And as he goes, he hears something that you and I could maybe hear. Everyone is shouting. Yeah, yeah, let's go, let's go. Come on, come on, let's get him. The Bible says in the, New, in the King James Version, they were shouting for the battle. Let's go get the Philistines. Let's do it. Have you ever seen guys who are about to at a sports game and they're getting pumped up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on, come on. So I guess that's what they were doing, something like that. But they were getting ready. They're going out to fight. And as they go out, they're getting ready to go. And then all of a sudden, you could almost hear it. And there you see him, 10 feet tall, armored, a tank of a human. And all of a sudden, all the cheers and the hurrahs are gone from the Israelite army. Everyone is quiet, and Goliath gives his call, the same one you had before. Who will take me on? I defy you and your armies. Meanwhile, David is listening, and he's looking. Hey, I heard you before. Who's going? No one's going. Who, who is this Philistine that he would defy the armies of God? What's going to be done for the person who takes him out? Little stripling shepherd is wanting to find out what happens to the victor of a battle with Goliath. When he hears that, there is uh, just a, a few things that he had to deal with. But before I go to those challenges, I'd like to um, note something in verse 24. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, did what? They fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. The ones who had been shouting for the battle before see Goliath and they run the opposite direction, shaking. I don't know if they were shaking, but the Bible says they were dreadfully afraid, whatever that looks like.
David's brothers hear him speaking, and they do what any older brother would do. Come on. What are you doing here? You're just coming to see the battle. Get back and take care of your sheep, you little pipsqueak. Right? We don't want you here. And then you think like you're going to do something. Come on. Bye. Say hi to daddy for us. I don't know what they did, but they were not kind to David. You get that picture. And then, it's interesting, David's eventually taken to the king. And the king says, David, don't, no, no, don't, don't do this. And David's like, Saul, don't be bothered. It's okay. Everything's under control. Hey, when I was a shepherd, there was a bear that came and tried to take a lamb from our flock. I killed the bear. Grabbed him by his beard and And a lion, he tried to do the same thing. Don't worry about me. I got everything under control. God will put this Philistine down. That was the picture. That was, that was the, uh, the, the faith, if you will, of David. However, Saul doesn't think so. He's like, you know what? He's been a warrior since he was born, almost. And you're still wet behind the ears. You can't do it, David. David's challenges are this. The army's scared. His brothers are mocking him. And the leadership think he doesn't have a chance. And then, of course, there's the giant. These are the challenges that David has. However, those of you who are listening to the children's story, here's the connect. What does David have on his side? He remembers. Don't forget this. He remembers what God has done for him in his past. Sometimes it's easy to forget the miracles that God has done for us in the past because the present seems greater than the miracles of the past. But don't forget what God has done for you. He remembers what God has done. He's confident that God will continue to take care of him. I love this, and I'm going to make sure we're, we're reading these. Um, Moreover, David said, this is verse 37. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He did it in the past. He will do it again. He refuses, I like this, to fight in Saul's armor. I always find this interesting. Um, most children's books that I used to read about uh, David, the reason he didn't wear Saul's armor is because it was too big. That's actually not what the Bible says. The Bible says he hadn't proved it. He hadn't tried it. Um, he had not tried fighting with them before, so he didn't know if they would work or not. He wasn't going to go like that. You and I cannot fight giants in someone else's armor. It's not possible. Um, Someone else's relationship with God is not going to help you fight your giants. Um, just because someone else, by the way, has a spiritual life a certain way doesn't mean that God's wanting you to fight that way. You know, I used to, I used to feel it. Um, you know how it is when you're younger. You know, back when I was young. You put things in boxes. This is the way everyone's going to operate. This is the way everything's supposed to happen. And I started realizing that different people fight differently, but with God. And that's beautiful. Um, I see that picture here. 
To fight in your own armor is simply this, to have a personal relationship with God and listen to his leading in your life. That is what it means to fight in your armor. So he goes out and he takes what he has. Simply a staff and a slingshot, right? And how many stones? Five. And of course, you all know that's for Goliath and his four brothers. All right. One thing I also like about him, notice this in verse, I think it's verse 40. And he took his staff in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put him in a shepherd's bag, and a pouch what he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. David's faith was not simply remembering what God has done, trusting what God would do, not fighting someone else's armor. Part of David's faith is this. David's here, Goliath's there, and David's direction is this way. David doesn't go away from the giant. David goes towards the giant. David's faith is not a faith that runs. David's faith is a faith that advances. Well, Goliath, uh, I love this. Uh, He's not. He looks at him. It says in verse 42, And when the Philistine looked about him and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. By the way, David's one of the few people in the Bible that keep calling good-looking. I don't know if you ever noticed that. Interesting. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then, those never to be forgotten words. Thank you, Ethan, for reading them. Verse 45. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. Wow. Verse 47, then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Goliath, you ever heard the phrase fighting words? Those were fighting words. And when Goliath heard it, he took his helmet. I don't know why he did it, but he pushed it back on his forehead a little bit and said, come on, let's go. Um, I shouldn't tell you too many stories of my time in college, but this is another story. Um, yeah, I was a little bit of a hothead. And there was a certain guy that was in our choir who just always, I don't know, he's always pushing my button. And, uh, and I think I pushed his button. And I remember one time we were, we were on a mission trip of all places. Please, don't follow my example. Isn't that, don't you love it when people say that? Do as I say, not as I do. And I, f- I was being egged on by him. And finally, I just got so frustrated, I just took my coat off. We went into a parking lot, I took my coat off, and said, okay, I've had enough, let's go. Right? He was a, much smarter than I was. He could have hurt me terribly, and he just said, Chuck, you're acting like an idiot, basically, and he walked away. Praise God he did that. 
I, I'm glad he did that for multiple reasons. But Goliath was not smart like I was not smart. In anger, he shoves his helmet back and says, come on, I got you. And as he's running towards him, I like what the Bible says. It says that Goliath ran, excuse me, David ran to meet him. David ran, and as he's running, he grabs his slingshot, and I don't know how many, you know, we do the round and round and round and round. I don't know if he had time to do that much. It was just one swift. The Bible says that the stone hit him in the forehead. One protected, unprotected part of his body. He stumbles around like someone who can't see. Falls on his face. David rushes in, who's not armed, takes the sword of the Philistine, and what does he do? He cuts off the head of the Philistine. I'd have the picture of him falling. David won a battle that day. But there's a point that I think we can't miss. In this battle of Goliath against David, most people were expecting to see some kind of matchup of muscle against muscle, weapon against weapon, skill against skill. The outcome of the fight was guessed from the very beginning based upon the knowledge of the two people fighting. You look at the picture that's behind me. If you put these two against each other, you wouldn't question when we look at the outward from a human perspective, giants don't fail. Goliath was much stronger, he had better weapons, and he was highly skilled in the art of war. Goliath should have obliterated David. You know, oftentimes, uh, you know, we always have an interest in the underdog story. I, I, I can't speak for you, but I love underdogs. I think we, we do. We like it when the, when the, when the smaller one wins, Right? But this isn't simply an underdog story. See, David was an underdog, but his victory wasn't based solely on his skill. David's victory in this story was based upon his faith in God and how God worked through events to help him win against Goliath. You know, as we close this story, I'd like to point out a few principles for winning against giants. If you want to win against the giants in your life. By the way, is there any giants in your life? Say, well, Chuck, I, I haven't seen one of these guys. Not here in Osterville. Uh, maybe in Hyannis, but not here. No, we don't have them. We don't see them this size, right? Uh, someone was mentioning we haven't had a guy even within a foot of this since 2016. So what are your giants? We face giants of fear. Giants of doubt. Giants of hate. Giants of lust, giants of pride, giants of bitterness, giants of anger. They're there. You know, I know that most of you here who are my age or older, You've seen so much of this that you know that the giants are alive and well. These giants can't be defeated by you. They attacked your parents. They've attacked your grandparents. 
and they're persistent. They don't stop. They keep coming back. That's what giants do. So if you want to win against a giant, first thing, you must remember whose battle it is. You know what David said? The battle is the Lord's. If you think the battle's yours and you fight it like it's yours, you're going to be in trouble. Remember who the battle belongs to. Next, remember God's leading. God hasn't brought you this far to let you go. God hasn't worked in your life to bring you to this point to say, hasta la vista. That's not the God we serve. God has done miracles, and the problem is so many times we forget the miracles of the past. Remember God's leading. You can't be successful against giants if you're basing it on someone else's strength. I've got a good dad. I like him. But my dad's faith isn't mine. There are new friends of mine over the past five years in this church who I look up to as spiritual leaders. But you know what? Your faith, I can't win with. We must fight in our own armor. Next one, don't run away. Not only are giants stronger, but unlike my friend who was chasing me back when I was my first teaching job, they're faster too. They catch up. You think you got them behind you? They're in your rearview mirror, and you turn around, they're in front of you. That's just the way it is. Don't run away. Face the giants. Be willing to look at the giants in your life and say, okay, I know you exist, and I know I don't have what it takes. I need to what? Trust in God. Now, this trust in God, I've made it look simple. It's not meant to be simple. It involves us connecting ourselves with God in a very real way. Sometimes our giants are bigger than we can do by ourselves, and we actually need to ask for help from other Christian friends. Am I right? I recognize that. But winning against giants is something that God does. You know, there's a a thought here as I close. You and I really don't have what it takes to fight these giants by ourselves. We need to understand who we are and who God is. It is his battle in our lives. Let us trust him and face our giants. Will you say with me, the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, when the enemy comes in like a flood, let us remember the battle is the Lord's. Give my friends, my church family, myself, the grace we need, Father, to trust you and to let you fight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Our song, our closing song today, I believe ties in with our 
sermon? Yes, stand up, stand up for Jesus.